0: Uh, joining us today is Thomas Frank, the author of The People, Know: A Brief History of anti Antipopulism. Uh, Thomas Frank, thanks for being here. It is
1: my pleasure.
0: All right, so I'd like to begin. I mean, there's, there's a lot of history here in this book, and there's a lot to discuss that's relevant to the, the current moment. But I would like to begin by discussing lawn signs. I'm talking about a specific <laughs> kind of lawn sign that you may see in a specific kind of neighborhood. It is the lawn sign that says... In this house, we believe, and yeah. then after that, there's a there's a list of things that the people in the house believe in. Um, it's like we believe in science, Black Lives Matter, women's rights or humans rights, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and they, by the way, they've added to to it since I since I described it for the book. They've they've got a new generation of those signs with new line items well it's like sort of like those t
0: shirts you can order on Facebook that 's just like i'm married to a badass Leo who 's a welder uh, and uh, <laughs> loves movies and it 's just a sort of a personalized list of the things you like and believe in but you know my point here is that uh, not that um, so much that these sentiments are wrong, but um what do they what do they tell us in terms of like the, the in terms of what they say, but also what they admit like what does it illustrate to you about the state of the modern liberal imagination
1: so uh, you know like you said uh, I agree with everything they say on these yard signs, including the new additions, which are things like uh, "water is life," and uh, you know uh, some of these other ones. Statement. Yeah, Yeah, but so they it's the, the signs you see now are they're quite crowded. They've got so many you know different items, and I don't disagree with any of them. What 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 bugs me about them is that they conspicuously leave one item out. And it's my item; <laughs> it's the one that I care about, which is anything having to do with with work, or labor, or you know, social hierarchy. It, that's just gone, uh, and and it's like it's it's uh, you know it's as though it, it's just simply not part of the liberal equation anymore. And not coincidentally, these are signs that you tend to see in in you know fairly affluent neighborhoods uh, like where i'm sitting right now and like the place i was i grew up in so yeah like on on this laundry list of uh of
0: things that people would like to advertise good to the causes outside world. This laundry yeah, list these, of virtues virtuous oh, yeah.
1: virtuous stances
0: yeah but in a way they become kind of platitudes but you know on on this list and which now includes things like uh we drink water uh, water is life <laughs> uh they don't say we you know this house believes in the right to collective bargaining
1: Right. Or or, or a minimum wage or, or, you know, that that everybody should should earn a living wage, et cetera. You know, everybody should have a right to health care. None of that's on there. It's the the economic the economic aspect of liberalism is deleted. And it's sort of a way
0: in which these, you know, as you mentioned, mostly affluent people use to promote themselves, not just themselves individually as good, morally uh, decent people, but to promote like their class as the correct leaders of the nation. Yes. the, the, The morally
1: good people. Exactly. And that's in my mind, that is one of the most interesting aspects of the Trump years that but, you know, it's been the change has been going on for a long time, which is the sort of emergence of the professional, uh, you know, white collar elite as the rank and file of the left or the Democratic Party or however you want to put it. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. This is obviously this is a change that's been going on for a long time. I wrote whole book about it that came out in 2016 but now it's it's everywhere and it's in your face all the time and the i mean the most sort of shocking uh example of it to me just happened here recently so i went i i I go uh, i'm from kansas city originally but i'm from the suburbs that are that are in kansas okay not missouri but in in kansas johnson county kansas and this is the most affluent county in Kansas by far. And the the neighborhood that I grew up in is, is the most affluent neighborhood in Johnson County. My family were not particularly, they they aren't particularly rich, but that's nevertheless where I happened to, you know, live when I was a child. And so I knew these people, you know, and I played with their kids and this is literally the ruling class of the state of Kansas, right? They own the place. And, when I was younger, I thought that these were the most Republican people I would ever meet. They were, you know, this is Bob Dole's people. This is Dwight D. Eisenhower's people. And uh, I went back and looked at it. And they, the county that I grew up in voted for every Republican, well, for, for only Republicans in presidential elections going all the way back to um, – Woodrow Wilson, the last time they voted for a Democrat was in 1916. And that means – so the state of Kansas has gone for Democrats several times. Like they went for Roosevelt. They went for Lyndon Johnson. But not my county. It always went for uh, the Republican. Well, it went for Biden. And uh, you the know, first time in over 100 years. And if you dig down into the data, the neighborhood that I grew up in, Biden won every single precinct. And this is part of a larger shift that is going on all around us that none of us really have a grasp of yet. Because if you asked me 20 years ago how to describe Republicans or conservatism or something like that, I'd say, well, that's the, um, that's the ruling class. That's the Koch brothers. That's the people that own this country. Uh, Republicans are the party of big business and of, of organized money. And that's, that explains like 90% of American politics. Well, that's not so clear anymore. Uh, and that's those those yard signs are a, <laughs> I wandered pretty far afield from that. But those yard signs are a funny manifestation of this this new sort of coalition of the elite that has come together around the Democratic Party in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. And, and you said like this, this shift has been has been going to, going on over a long time. But like just just into ground it in the present day before go, returning to the past, um, you write towards the end of the book that. The battle over what populism means is really about how liberals view themselves and their relationship to the country that they want to reform and the people that they want to lead. So in terms of like what, what has led to this change in the liberal mind uh, toward, about their attitude towards populism, but it, what that really means is the people, the little guy, the underdog. And as yep. a consequence, what is, like, how does this affect the things that liberals, progressives, the left, whatever you want to call them, want to do or not do
1: with power? It's a big question okay. <laughs> I mean it's in some ways that's the biggest question, you know, and what you have seen just in the course of my lifetime is a souring of the relationship between liberalism and the people uh, liberalism and and well uh, I mean let's be specific about what I mean by populism, which is mass movements of working class people yeah, transracial uh, movements of working class people these are in ex- movements like that are in extremely bad uh uh odor with democrats and liberals nowadays there is a a sense among uh liberals that uh you know that 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 ordinary people are are the problem with america i mean there is i mean there's and there there are people that state this openly and explicitly do you remember there was an essay that everybody was talking about back in 2016 where he was he was sort of contemplating the rise of trump and the rise of what he called populism and he said uh the author of his essay said that the the problem is not that um america shit i'm gonna get it wrong it's not that america's elites abandoned the working class the ordinary people it's the other way around the problem in america is that ordinary people no longer have faith in we the elite
0: Yeah, I have a a few examples, uh, a few clips here from some of our favorite writers and thinkers. Uh, They include... uh Andrew Sullivan, who had a 2016 essay entitled, <laughs> Democracies End When They Are Too Democratic. Um, Yasha Mauck, uh, uh in, in The People vs. Gra- a great
1: A great scholar of, of populism,
0: by the way. <laughs> uh, described populism as a disease. And then I think Jonathan Rauch is the guy you're thinking of. He says, our most pressing political problem today is that the country abandoned the establishment, not the other way around. That's uh, it, we also yeah. have uh, David Brooks uh, in the New York Times wrote that populism is the word we use to describe the hatred of excellence by the Mediocre. Uh, Tom Nichols wrote in Foreign Affairs that America has lost its face in expertise, and uh, we have now been into in populism is now the celebration of ignorance. I don't know yeah. about Jonathan yes. Rauch. I don't know about Jonathan Rauch, but every single one of those people loudly promoted the war in Iraq.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and so this is this is again this is the result of it's a long term uh, uh, shift that suddenly came to a head just here in the last few years, okay? So liberalism started identifying itself with, uh, I don't want to say intellectuals, but with the highly educated. This sort of begins in the 1950s. And, uh, you know, it has a, a sort of a rocky uh, relationship in the during the Vietnam War period and stuff like that. But then in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, it becomes uh, pretty open. There was a group called the Democratic Leadership Council. Do you remember these guys? Of oh, course. Yeah. Well, the whole idea was that the Democrats had to give up on the New Deal and on organized labor and had to reach out and embrace what they called, they had this great, they had this great uh, euphemism for these guys, the learning class. This new, the new, the winners in the new post-industrial society that we were entering. And we, that, that had to become the new constituency of the Democratic Party. And there's these other terms for it. Like, do you remember Richard Florida? The, he called them the creative class. And they did this. The Democratic Party did this. And, and by and large, they succeeded at doing this. Now, this was not a great recipe for success for many years. This is the, the opposite, right? Uh, but, but now this seems to have worked, and they identify themselves very openly with this highly educated, affluent, white-collar um, elite. And, and, it, and it really disturbs them when, <laughs> when all of a sudden people aren't listening to the, uh, highly, you know, the affluent, highly educated, white-collar elite anymore.
0: And it's it's not just that they have uh, eschewed doing anything like you know uh, breaking up monopolies or or right, breaking up the right. big doing, banks doing the after, doing yeah 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 after they don't the want financial to do that crisis stuff. it's it's also <laughs> that they have they have a sort of disdain ideology in general of any kind because our, 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 our passionate belief in anything is, is dangerous to them and I'm wondering like you, you, this this process has been going on for a long time as you mentioned but uh, just how specifically have the election of Trump Brexit and England and the two primary runs of Bernie Sanders really like supercharged this in, in these people. Well,
1: that's your ta- that's the that's the whole thing right there. It's like so the and the word populism is the one that they use to just dis- all of the things that you just described. They summarize with the word populism, which is, of course, as well as we get into this, you'll see is a complete misnomer, except for Bernie Sanders, who I think is as close to a populist as our system, as we have nowadays. But uh Those are the things that really brought this, uh, you know, all this stuff to a head. You know, you you look back at the Obama administration. They weren't all that worried about Occupy Wall Street. You know, they were much, much, much more worried about appeasing um, the bankers. There was there was not a whole lot of worry about, uh, uh, you know, a whole lot of concern about people who who didn't like NAFTA, for example. This is all um, this is this is this is a recent this is a shocking thing to them that there are such people out there.
0: And well, I mean, you bring it up uh, there. There are, there are a lot of people now, especially on the right and, and, and some on the left who are are claiming uh, the, the, the mantle of populism. So like but, but you point like just you, you point out how absolutely suicidal it is for like liberals or, or really anyone to cede that ground to like the right. So, like, what what would you, like, what, how do the right populists, like, I don't know, the Josh the Hawley, Tom Cotton, and Trump yeah. himself, like, yeah. what what would you say about, like, their claim to, like, the history of this movement
1: that you're talking about? Like, in in any sense, could, could well, they don't Trump, know, they don't know anything about the history yeah. of it. They've just taken, I mean, come on, these are politicians, right? You know, they don't know anything about that. Uh, I used to, I, I would have said, you know, a while ago, if you asked me, that Steve Bannon knew a little bit about it, but not, not really. Um uh, Pat Buchanan liked to, likes to call himself a populist, but it's not clear he really knows anything about it either. Uh, by the way, Trump's, um, Trump's entire act was basically swiped from Pat Buchanan. You know, only Trump, Trump is a lot better at it than, uh, than Buchanan was. But uh, none of these guys really know anything about it. Like you have, um, uh, there's so the people used to call Ronald Reagan a populist. You know, this was common in the early 1980s. Um, And I forget which member of his inner circle would write these articles about what a populist Ronald Reagan was. But a big part of it was this. Do you remember they were really into into the gold standard, into bringing back the gold standard? I mean, the stuff that they've done is exactly the opposite of what the populists would do. Like Reagan, for example, they're all saying, what a great populist he is. He, he, you know, wants to bring back the gold standard. He, he wants to stop enforcing the the uh, the antitrust laws in this country. He wants to deregulate banks. You know, it cut income taxes. You know, every single thing that he did was the exact opposite of what the you know the the people who made up the word populism of what they meant by it. And yet he gets he gets to uh, to walk away with this term as though it's the most perfectly natural thing in the world. But it's not clear at all that any of these people on the right know anything about the historic populist movement but i mean if, there, if there's one thing about trump or, or or brexit i mean it did make
0: the you know a, a certain kind of elite in this country uh terrified angry and uh, upset <laughs> yes. i mean so, so there, it takes so on a, a veneer because like the people that are terrified by it or or denouncing it do have a, a certain anti-populist yes uh, now that, so of that's so that's the
1: Yes, and that's the that is the continuity. That's the sort of through line that really got started to intrigue me as I was writing this book. Uh, the people know is this history of anti populism, and I, I did not expect to find this when I started writing the book. But the the, the 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 continuity between just to take a step back, the word populist was invented by a bunch of guys in the state of Kansas. My home state to describe a left wing third party movement. It was a it was a kind of effort to build a a labor party like they have in England in America, and they called it populism. Okay, anyhow, so uh, uh, there is a there is a populist tradition in American life. It is much diminished nowadays. Uh, you know, there are examples. Uh, like i mentioned bernie sanders earlier we can talk about a few other examples if you want but it's much diminished nowadays the word is everywhere but the 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 sort of populist tradition itself has uh, has been tamped down quite a bit anti-populism though there is this direct line from the people who hated the original populist movement in the 1890s to these people around us today that, remember the, that list of quotations that you read all of these figures denouncing populism they're using the exact same uh idea of what you know the danger of mass working class movements the exact same idea that these people uh in in uh, you know back in the 1890s used in order to uh, you know to smash the original populist movement the idea being that uh, what is populism well populism is demagoguery populism is a form of insolence it's when the you know it's when the uh, uneducated or the unwashed try to you know aspire to uh, above their station they try to run things that they have no idea how to run populism is a form of mental illness all of these things they said all of these things back in the 1890s and it's very close to uh, almost word for word. They're saying them again today and again without any consciousness that, that, that this has happened before. But there is this anti-populist tradition in America that is like it has no self-conscious, no consciousness of itself, but you can trace it as it erupts over the years. But it always erupts in the same way. I call it a democracy scare, this sort of coming together of the tribes of the elite, you know, uh, in, in a kind of hysteria against uh, this perceived other, this sort of uh, eruption of, you know, the, of, the, of uh, you know, what's always perceived as sort of uh, uh, insolence, you know, po- uh, uh, working class insolence.
2: They're supposed to be doing the, uh, I mean, it is interesting how they have to square this because what the populist demand is, is for people to actually have influence over the actions of their government. And there is an understanding that that can't be allowed to happen. But if that's the case, how do you maintain, I guess, the uh, facade of democracy? Because they are essentially, at any time they're pressed, they will all admit that this is all just at our sufferance because we know that if the people were in charge, we wouldn't have these jobs. These jobs wouldn't exist. These positions in society and these levels of remuneration would never be uh, allowed yep. to happen.
1: Look, uh, democracy is—you uh, know—there's a lot of people in this country that don't really like democracy, and every fifty years or so, they you they they get they get worked up and they come right out and say it. You know, we. We just don't like this idea, and uh, they, they fall back on – now, this is where this – I don't want to make the story too complicated, but another reason why Trump is not is not a genuine populist, the only reason Trump got elected in the first place is because of the electoral college. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good point. I mean you think,
2: you think the populist figure stop, would be like
1: you know. more people would actually
0: like him than the other candidate, but that's <laughs> – the only reason he's president is because of, of something like the electoral
1: college, which was created to yeah. blunt the popular the stop people like him. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this malfunctioning. He's also, you know, look, he is a, he's a real estate billionaire. He is one of them. You know, he was at the, uh, you know, the Clintons came to his wedding. There's a certain, there's a certain sense of, in which he betrayed, you know, he betrayed them. But, uh, uh, that's, but we, your, your larger point that you're, that you were, that you are that you were trying to get at Matt is exactly right. There's this long, I mean, all through American history, there is this, you know, profound suspicion of, Full democracy, I mean the founding the founding fathers they built all of these different systems to make sure that that, that, that the people never really ruled that you never really had true democracy you know the the Senate, for example the u s senators were used to be elected by state legislatures they weren 't elected by the people they were, they were chosen by state legislatures, and it turned out. State legislatures, it's incredibly easy to bribe a state legislature. Did you guys know this? It is. Oh, God, those guys were so The Vanderbilt yeah. family got their personal lawyer, their personal attorney elected to the U.S. Senate. You know, it, and, in in Kansas, well, they used to – needless to say, this happened all the time. And so this is one of the reforms that the original populists demanded was to make senators um, directly elected. We did. We have that now. They also wanted votes for women, and they wanted, you know, all of these other you know, make it easier to vote, make the secret ballot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, there's there is a powerful strain of elitist sentiment in this country that is really, really um, suspicious of popular democracy. And once upon a time, it was uh, the people who owned this country. You know, the, the sort of ownership class. Um, you know, landowners, later CEOs, that sort of thing. But today it is, it is definitely, you know, white collar elite. I mean, we're seeing the larger story here. There's this larger thing that's going on in America, this larger sort of sociological shift where this older elite, you know, that is an elite by dint of ownership, you know, they, they, they were entrepreneurs, they built up companies, whatever it is, they own everything has been supplanted by an elite that, that, that traces its authority to its educational credentials so that's your that's the professional class and uh you know this is like you look at wall street now and that's really what wall street is nowadays wall street is a lot of guys with with phds and stuff like that and that's certainly that's obviously silicon valley Um, that is the american elite nowadays and they are supplanting people like the Koch brothers who inherited it you know or donald trump well, if we
0: if we could if we could go back in, in, in time now to the, 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 the great plain states of America around the around the turn of the last century and like the late nineteenth century, your home state of Kansas that gave birth to this, this People's Party, which as you as you said was an attempt to like break up the two party duopoly and like create a a working people's party in America. What were some of the sort of abuses and outrages that were visited upon the people, the farmers and the people of these plain states that gave rise to this kind of political organization.
1: Yeah, so the, it's a uh, it's a great story, but um, you know it's it's uh, it's a story of sort of you know of awfulness. But uh, they were the, the rank and file of the populist party was by and large it was overwhelmingly farmers, and uh, farmers are you know back then farmers were more than half of the population, and farmers are debtors. Uh, they they have to borrow all the time. Uh, they still have to do that, and the uh, the you know they they were constantly in uh, uh, you know uh, being well they were they were they were having incredibly hard times all through the 1880s and all through the 1890s, and they set up a group called the Farmers Alliance. It was like a farmers if you know what the Farmers Union is it's very similar to that, and the idea was they would get together and they would figure out what had happened to them and what they could do to to change it. And they would have speakers come out to these rural areas who would talk to them about the economic system of the country. And they came up with three big – well, uh, they had a whole series of reforms. The main one was that they wanted to change the currency system. The US back then was on what's called a gold standard. The amount of money in circulation is directly tied to how much gold is in the government's vault. And the problem with a gold standard is it's deflationary because the population of the U.S. was growing explosively at the time. The economy was growing explosively and the amount of money in circulation was not changing at all. And what this means is is terrible deflation. Prices go down all the time uh, as the value of the dollar goes up and up and up and up and up. So if you're borrowing money you are in you're in a terrible situation because you have to pay it back in dollars that are worth a lot more than they were when you borrowed them and so the farmers are uniquely screwed in this kind of situation they also wanted the government to nationalize the railroads which are which are a now uh, Which are a monopoly you know they function they 're always they always function as monopolies, and they wanted a bunch of other uh lesser reforms they wanted uh farm programs they wanted the federal government to step in and you know uh, start various farm programs they wanted votes for women they wanted you know direct election of senators all this sort of thing uh, we're all reforms that are that are very familiar to us today uh, because they 've all been achieved anyhow they, they, were also, they like, was like, all, it, it was, was very radical as well they were also like That's very right. born in the Philippines later. yeah so that what happened? Well, so they didn't last long. The, the uh, party didn't last very long. It started in in the year 1890 and was basically mortally wounded by the election of 1896. We can talk about that later. It's a really f- interesting story. But uh, so then the the uh, 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 the Spanish American War started in 1898, and some some of them were. I mean, they were already a much reduced force. So th- just so your, your your listeners know, the populists were successful as a third party. They elected U.S. senators. They had members of Congress. They had – there were two governors of Kansas who were populists um, all over the Dakotas, Nebraska, all over the plains. In the south, you had uh, populist politicians who succeeded and were elected. I mean it's the last time a third-party effort succeeded all over the country. The only part of America where they they had no luck at all was where you guys are right now in the northeast. <laughs> they couldn't get anywhere in the northeast. And uh, anyhow, so they were they were they were mildly successful. But after 1896, they just they they fell to fighting with one another, broke into factions. And that was pretty much the end of them. But there were a few of them left. And then in 1898, there were some of them still in Congress. The Spanish-American War happened and they were at first in favor of this because it seemed like um, we were going to liberate Cuba. You know, Cuba was under the. Uh, You know, under the under the foot of this this horrible Spanish empire, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But once they figured out that it was an imperial war, they turned against it uh, pretty profoundly. And in 1900, by this time, populism was almost dead. You know, this is, by the way, a piece of history nobody knows. The Democratic Party. This is uh, the populace by this time had basically become an arm of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party ran uh, William Jennings Bryan for president, and his platform was anti-imperialism. That's how he was going to challenge President McKinley was on. Uh, he, he said democracies have no business being empires. It's funny he was right about that.
0: <laughs> but yeah, that's all forgotten side, today. This is sort of side. But you think that uh, William Jennings Bryan as a figure in American history has been sort of unfairly characterized or slandered by his, uh, basically role in inherit the wind. Cause like when I was growing up, I was like, Oh, he's, he's the bad
1: guy from inherit the wind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all learned that I even acted in that. I was, <laughs> I played, I played the Brian character. I memorized, you know, that all that stuff where, you know, where he goes, he goes, he, he loses it when he's on the stand and he starts reciting the books of the Bible and stuff. I, but, I, I, I learned that I could do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> a bonus. Content. Yeah, you're, of course, you're, you're absolutely right. But it's it's also. I mean, he did come to a sad end. I mean, let's let's be honest. This guy started out as this uh, you know a, a man of destiny, the youngest presidential candidate ever picked by a main party. You know, in 1896, he was 36 years old, and you know a, he he seemed like this brilliant young reformer, and uh, and then lost in this kind of spectacular way this really you know everybody thought he was going to win and instead he lost and his his life and career really spiraled you know downhill in a in a really uh, tragic way and and by the end of his life you know he was this leader of the fundamentalists and yeah it's really sad
0: so like, another 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 big issue that comes up like when talking about populism and the history of the people's party is the issue of race in America like how did the how did the people's party um approach the issue of race in America in the time that they live in and how how does continuing like like continuing onward the specter of racism and bigotry used to um sort of haunt and, and attack the legacy of populism in America
1: so this is this is really important this is a, a, a extremely important aspect of the story for the simple reason that the word populism now is re, is used by a lot of people as a synonym for racism and uh if you study, the original populist party in the 1890s, it was the opposite of that. It was it was the uh, I mean, they weren't like uh, uh, anti-racist or or racially enlightened, socially enlightened in the way that we are today. But by the standards of the 1890s, they proposed something that was really radical. I'm going to tell you what it is. So at the time uh, in the South. So populism was big. Its best areas were the Great Plains and the South and uh in the south uh, you know the, the, uh, uh, there I mean there was a group called the Black Populists that organized side by side with the with the the main uh you know white farmers Alliance or these two groups, and the black Populists were influential in getting the third party started and uh they, uh, they you know they went to the uh, voters of the south the populist party went to the voters of the south and said here 's our proposal to you." At the time, the South was ruled by this uh, racist organization called the Democratic Party. You, you know, they've. You heard of this one, folks? The Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I refer to them as the Bourbon Democrats to sort of distinguish them from modern day. That's what they used to call them, the Bourbon Democrats. But they were. This was the ruling class of the South. Not only were they the dominant political party, but they owned the place. They they spoke for the the you know the elite of the south and their uh the way they maintained they always had after the civil war was over they were faced with this chronic problem in the south which is if the uh uh the poor black farmers ever get together with the poor white farmers and and form some kind of you know do some kind of coordinated political effort the bourbon democrats were done for and this was a sort of chronic uh sort of Fear that they had this specter that haunted the sort of ruling elite of the South. And there were a number of attempts actually to do this, to bring together the white farmers and the black farmers. And the biggest one of these attempts was populism. This is what happened in the South. The Populist Party came into the South and said, This is our proposal. That, uh, you know, the, the Bourbon Democrats always talk about, they had this doctrine of what they called white solidarity. The idea being that white people had to stick together because the only value that, 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 that was meaningful was their race. That was, you know, in, in, in terms of their identity, the only thing that mattered was their race, their identity as white people. And they had to stick together out of fear of, of the blacks. And so the, the populist, Went into the south and said, you know what, that's not that's that's a that's a ridiculous fear. Your real interests are not as white people there as farmers. And if we actually make common cause with the black farmers, we can get get our people elected. We can actually win and we can actually start doing things. And this is so this is in the eighteen nineties. In a lot of the southern states, blacks could still vote. And here's the freaky thing, it actually came to pass. In a lot of these places, it started to happen. And there were, um, you know, a lot of there were black populist organizers and this kind of thing. And they started doing this. And the uh, Bourbon Democrats came down on them like a ton of bricks and just destroyed these guys. And the uh, the one st- southern state where they they broke through and actually the populists actually won was was North Carolina, where they were able to do this. They were able to bring the populist voters together with the um uh, Republican Party, which at the time was the sort of traditional party of black voters in the South. And they won. And they they took over the state legislature. They elected a governor, U.S. senator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, uh, the Bourbon Democrats beat them with this, the most hideous, it's a, cam, a campaign that they actually called the White Supremacy Campaign. This is, again, in the year 1898, the White Supremacy Campaign. And they managed to uh, uh, by uh, ginning up this incredible racial climate of racial hysteria uh, to beat the populists and the um, and the Republicans. And uh, after they did that, they disenfranchised black voters all over the South. Well, in North Carolina, this happened in in um, many southern states. It was once they suppressed populism, they disenfranchised uh, uh, poor voters, uh, blacks and a lot of poor whites. And the, the, uh, I mean, they were, they were quite open about why they were doing this. It's to make sure this never happens again. Make sure that something like this, you know, that you don't see this kind of alliance coming together ever again. Anyhow, there's the a lot, we, there's a lot more detail to in the it. Way but, we,
0: but in the way we talk about it now, and like you said, like it, it, populism has become a synonym for racism in, in America yeah. today. And it's sort of this idea that the way people think of it, it's like, it's just, it, it's, it's a code, it's a dog whistle for, like, the unbridled and, like, barbaric bigotries that you can use to rile up, you know, like, the, the, the dum-dums and the angry, hateful people out there. And But always, like, it's always implied that, like, the, the populist rhetoric attacking elites is a fig leaf for the, their real intentions and bigotries and hatreds of like of other more vulnerable yeah because like right, those I, elites they haven't done anything wrong those yeah elites, no that, <laughs> <incredible. It's like laughs> one reason is this they idea, possibly have <laughs> but left unsaid on this is this idea that like oh the elites you know like that group of people that love every human being yeah exactly right the elites,
1: they're looking out for us yeah so that's that is a really interesting so this is the, one of the, the as, I, as i mentioned before this is the um this is the reason i wrote the book is to you know when uh, well, it was even before Trump got elected. When Brexit happened, I started noticing that American um, journalists and sort of think tank people and you know uh, political scientists were now using the word populism, which before had been kind of uh, uh, it was a word that didn't have it meant almost anything. Like Jimmy Carter called himself a populist. You know, people called Ronald Reagan a populist. Uh, it was a word that that was all over the map. But all of a sudden, political scientists were using it as a synonym for racist. And I was like, where the hell did they get that? You know, how did that, how did the word uh, migrate in that way? How did it become the opposite? And one of the things that I looked up, I actually don't know if I put this in the book, is what did they call the, I mean, because those racist Southern politicians obviously existed a long time ago. What did they call them in the days before when, you know, when we only used the word populism in the correct way to refer to the actual movement in the 1890s? And I looked it up and you know what the answer is? What? They called them demagogues. There was this tradition. So this, this is a book about it's like it's written in the 30s and it's about all of these racist southern politicians. And the populists actually appear in the book, but they're the good guys. And the demagogues are the ones who suppress populism and who beat it down. Anyhow, it's a uh, but that's that that's what that tradition was called. It was southern demagogues. Uh, there was this, you know, this racist tradition of misleading people talking about, you know, white solidarity and white supremacy and all that kind of crap. And that was that was something else. That wasn't populism. Populism were the good guys, right? But yeah, the word, the the, the meaning of the word changed. And so I, I, and I know you don't want me to talk about this now, but we'll we'll come to it later. But uh, so I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by how it changed and why it changed. I'm setting well, you up here, Mister. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, my my next question is to jump ahead in history
0: a little bit because you know you you talked about how the, the the People's Party was eventually defeated, but you do like you 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 show how their ideas lived on and their ideas like the, that DNA can be traced into FDR's New Deal. And one of the things you write about the uh, about the New Deal and like FD, FDR's you know huge success as president um, is the the extent that it was successful relied uh, in a large part. On how willing he was to completely ignore the opinions of the correct, the serious people and the elite.
1: Yes. Yes. And that, by the way, that is another little, uh, little tidbit of history that is completely forgotten. Because today, if you read your sort of mainstream uh, history or political science and they're talking about the Roosevelt era, they'll say Roosevelt. He's the – what makes Roosevelt great is that he brought – academics to Washington he brought he, and he put scholars in charge of things you know the brain trust and everything and so it's to roosevelt that we look when we want to understand uh, you know our modern day you know the the sort of uh, democratic party ideal of having uh, of having these these uh, you know nobel prize winners or whatever it is you know uh, uh pulitzer prize winners in charge of everything but this is not the case at all the people that roosevelt brought in to help him with the government were uh, by and large, regarded as cranks at the time. And thank God they were because had he actually gone with respectable scholarly opinion, uh, he would never have done any of the things that he did. I mean, the stuff that he did, deficit spending, for example, he took us off the gold standard. This was, by the way, a very populist thing that he did. He took America off the gold standard, like right away, you know, as soon as he becomes president. And this was just in the teeth. Of academic economics at the time, they're like, "How can you do that?" One of his advisors, who was a more formal, you know, uh, uh, you know, member of the American elite, said, "This is the end of Western civilization. You've taken us off the gold standard." And uh, there's a, uh, you know, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who's, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a figure who really interests me because he spent. A lot of his life denouncing what he called uh, conventional wisdom, went back, and he was an advisor to Roosevelt. And he went back in the fifties and wrote an essay about about Roosevelt's you know choice of advisors. And he said, you know, Roosevelt did not choose orthodox you know economists at all. He chose like small town bankers and you know these people from weird you know out of the way the margins of society to run things. People with ideas that were considered you know foolish. Uh, you know, marginal ideas. But Galbraith says, thank, thank goodness he did that because the people with the orthodox ideas were the ones that got us into the Depression. These are the ones advising Herbert Hoover. You know, had he put those people in charge, you would have never had a new deal. Anyhow, I, again, I gave you more than you were, you were, you were bargaining for, but… Well, you, you talked about
2: a
0: guy who staffed his administration with people who, who genuinely were, you know, not you know, outside the box. Well, let's, let's do that contrast with another Democratic president who staffed his administration with all the smartest, most sensible people. And I'm talking about Obama, of course. And I just want, when, I, when I was preparing for this, I was, I was looking at reviews of your book, and I noticed that there was sort of a similar theme in a lot of them, I mean, like one in particular. And they all say basically, like, oh, this is, this is a good book. You know, Thomas Frank's history is a much-needed corrective to this, you know, the way in which, you know, this has been slandered, blah, blah, blah. It goes on. You know, yes, he's, he's right on X, Y, and Z. But then at the end, there's always this turn. And they say, you know, but he, you know what? He just doesn't give Obama his due. He doesn't give enough credit to like the progressive victories that Barack Obama, the real achievements that he was able. I believe one review in The Guardian said the words Dodd-Frank never appear in this book. And then they go on to say the letters LGBTQ appear once. And uh, even though he is right to argue, the greatest economic battles remain to be fought and won. So, I mean, like, what do you, how do you feel about this idea that like, oh, you're just being you're just being too unfair to Obama. He got a lot of real achievements done.
1: Well, I will admit that the Obama years were a, a big turning point for me intellectually because I, I I really believed in Obama, and I'll tell you a, a kind of a dark secret. Uh, you know, the in the when Bush was president, you know, and Bush basically turned over the government to these hacks and cronies and, you know, made the Department of Labor into the Department of Management and, you know, all these things, right, turned the EPA over to polluters and all this kind of crap. And when Obama came in and brought all of these uh, really accomplished people with him, I was extremely relieved And I was excited about it at the time. I was a believer. I, I, I I hate to say this now because it sounds so naive, but in 2008, I was, uh, I had met Obama personally. I, you know, I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago and he was, he lived in the neighborhood. He was a teacher there. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, he's a brilliant man. And I was so uh, excited about this and, you know, that he was, that he was bringing in these, these people to advise him. And, so for me, that was the you know that's what Obamaism was all about. Was like let's put the most accomplished, most orthodox intellectuals, the prize winners, you know, the the foundation favorites. Uh, let's put them in charge, and he did that. And they they botched it royally. I mean, he was his chief economic advisor was the fucking president of Harvard University, right, <laughs> Larry <laughs> Summers. You know, there is no greater you know uh, a fount of orthodoxy than that. And and these guys, you know, then you, you go down the list of everything that he did. The, the, the stimulus was way too small. You know, they, he never got tough with the Wall Street banks. He totally left them let them off the hook. He never. Not only did he not break them up, he didn't even he didn't prosecute. He didn't even fire. Anybody. You know, you, uh, yes, they got Dodd-Frank done, but it's, it's massively complicated and it was totally vulnerable to the next whoever is the next Republican just coming in and easily you know, appointing somebody to run the agency that doesn't believe in the mission like they always do. Everything he did was a half measure. You know, you look at Obamacare you know which uh, again was the, you know he had this fantastic opportunity before him to reform the american healthcare situation and this is what he comes up with you know this is <laughs> this is awful and that's that is orthodoxy that's that is the you know that is the best and the brightest uh, uh uh working you know doing and he had remember the guy had massive majorities and had a mandate from the american public to do whatever the hell he wanted and this is what he did and that's the uh, you know, it is a straight up failing of this of this cohort of of, of leadership of this I should say of this idea of leadership, uh, and this is what you know it really pushed me in a in a populist direction. By which I don't mean Donald Trump, but in 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 terms of you know we have to you know. Be thinking in terms of mass movements and building mass movements of, of of working people, not in terms of like getting guys from Harvard to run things in Washington. I mean, well, you get into this,
0: this idea of uh, building mass movements, and I think this gets into like one of the thorniest but like most def- desperately needed um, like issues to confront is that uh, towards the end of the book you talk about a certain kind of so-called radicalism that 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 that, that, that demands a kind of like uh, a, a purity. And and not just a purity of, like, policy or ideology, but a purity in the individual hearts and minds of every single person involved in it. And I think a big thing I'm sort of seeing nowadays is, like, that. and I think it's an important question as it relates to, like, the left and any hope of a better future in this country, is can solidarity exist with people outside the we-believe-in lawn sign community? (laughs) Because there is currently an idea in Vogue that, like, any... Attempt at solidarity with poor white people or the quote white working class is not just dangerous, but cannot even be considered until the sin of racism and white supremacy is purged from the individual hearts and minds of each and every person who it theoretically could be seeking to help.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you, what you just described there—that's not a recipe for building a movement or for achieving solidarity or for doing any of the things that the, the left traditionally did. And it's not a surprise that that goes along with the what we were talking about at the beginning—the sort of gentrification of the of the left. You know, that, that that they have this this attitude about about building a movement. Let me take a step back. That my favorite historian of populism—the real deal—I mean, the movement in the 1890s was a guy called Larry Goodwin. Uh, he wrote a fantastic book called "Democratic Promise." It came out in the nineteen seventies. It was this granular study of the populist movement, and uh, Goodwin is was a really interesting guy. Uh, he wasn't a traditional academic. He got his start as a uh, uh, he was a organizer in the civil rights movement. And so he was going around in, in Texas, you know, going door to door and trying to register people to vote and doing all the things that you did back in the 1960s. You know, and he wrote and he was also a journalist. He wrote about the civil rights movement. He wrote about his experiences. And somewhere along the line, he became interested as a lot of these civil rights guys did. By the way, there's a, this is something that we probably don't have time to go into. But there is this in the civil rights era. There was this uh, uh, there were a lot of sort of shout outs to the original populist movement. Martin Luther King himself. Uh, made a famous one that I talk about in the book. But Goodwin is another guy who you know comes out of the civil rights movement, decides that he's going to study the original populist movement. And then later on, and then he becomes a professor at Duke and he runs a uh, uh, oral history of the civil rights movement and this kind of thing. Really, really, really great guy. And he later writes a series of articles sort of theorizing about the larger meaning of populism and how you build a movement because populism wasn't just a political party. It was a mass movement of working people. It was a farmer's union. And the party came out of that organization and then they, they reached out to like the Knights of Labor and the other uh, the labor unions that existed at the time. And uh, so he says there's these three great periods in American life. There's there's a uh, populism, you know, this mass movement of farmers, the 1930s when you have, you know, the CIO, you have this, you know, the massive labor organizing in the 1930s that really catches fire. And then the 1960s, where again, you have massive organizing among ordinary people and um, and he said, "How do you do this? How do you build a movement like these three uh, great examples?" And the the word that he, the phrase that he used, and it, it it haunts me. I think about it all the time. The phrase that he uses is, "You have to show ideological patience," because the people that you're working with did not go to graduate school. They don't know the jargon. You know they don't know the right way to talk, and a lot of them are backwards. A lot of them are going to be are going to be wrong in all sorts of ways. But the the idea of building a mass movement is you bring them in and you build them up, and you you know you educate them. They get educated when they're part of this movement, and they learn. You know their attitudes change. Movements change people, but the the thing is that ideological patience what he was talking about what you had to have if you want to build a mass movement like this and by the way we'll you know we're, I don't know if we're going to be able to get here but you can't change this system without a mass movement okay putting yard signs in affluent neighborhoods is not going to do it and having the president of harvard university you know at the council of economic advisors is not going to do it building a mass movement is how you do it but you can't have a mass movement if your whole idea is uh, to establish what, what, what a, a, a superior individual you are than everybody else in the world. If it's all about purity and about – so the, the term that I use is a, the utopia of scolding because that's like – that's Bethesda. That's where I live now. It's a utopia of scolding. It's these people who have these, these gilded lives, these beautiful lives. They live in these beautiful homes. They have a swimming pool. They're, they drive a fancy car. They have a wonderful life and their approach to politics is to scold people. You know, to shake their finger. It's like you 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 know you, you're you're wrong about this. There's something wrong with you. There's a whole class of people out here that didn't get it that aren't as well educated as me that don't understand things. That's their approach to politics. Well, yeah, of course you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to build a mass movement that way. In fact, it's the exact opposite of building a mass movement. It's 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 scolding. I mean, it's. No, the the math here is subtraction, not addition.
2: Which is to their benefit because they don't actually want to see anything change.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they might want little things to change here and there. You know, they don't like Donald Trump. They don't want want any of the
2: change that would actually structurally alter the unjust relationships that they do claim and probably do feel subjectively to be horrified by, but those things are all dependent on economic relationships that uh, that they just do not want to see changed. Yeah. Remember we
1: started off talking about the yard signs that leave economic issues out. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know that. I mean, why? And I have many examples of this in the book, and I've got many more that I've come up since 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 it was published there. Are, and you, once you guys start looking, you'll see it everywhere. These this 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 kind of liberal or this kind of, of uh, Democrat that is in favor of of all sorts of good things, things that I agree with. Right. I'm I'm very liberal. <laughs> I'm on the left. Things that I agree with, but they always leave out. The economic stuff. They always leave out when they're talking about issues. They always leave out labor. They always leave out the workplace. Uh, They always leave out uh, uh, you know uh, well the minimum wage. I mean, we all saw what happened with Biden and the minimum wage. You know, a few weeks ago, that's just not part of their frame of reference. They're not interested in changing those things.
2: Well, that's why they focus on the 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 scolding because if you have foreclosed the possibility of mass politics, which they have then the only way things can get better is if individuals start behaving better Just yes exactly because there's, no, about, there's right. no mechanism to make them change other than you convincing them to change differently by being smug at them
1: yeah or or by you you know scolding them and telling them to shut up you know which yeah. gets us in this this whole sort of rage for censorship that is going on now but there's this in the trump years there is there is this kind of moral hysteria among that you see among the sort of a uh, highly educated white collar elite of this country. That they are, you know, they're they're terrified that they are, you know, being dragged along by this, you know, this 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 political organization, the United States, that they don't understand anymore, and that is in the grip of, you know, the great unwashed, and it's horrifying to them, it's frightening to them, but but and you know now they've got their way, Um, we shall see. But these are these are people who are fundamentally not interested in uh, sweeping economic reform of the system in the way that populism was, in the way that the labor movement was, in the way that the civil right – well, that Martin Luther King certainly was –
0: and there's also, it also strikes me that there's, 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 an, I mean, obviously these people are all really dyed in the wool meritocrats. They all really believe in the meritocracy. Well, there So that's you know, exactly, exactly their success that's the word, has that's obviously word, yeah. been, been merited, you know, and then like their position and nice life and the house of the yard sign. Well, like, I mean, it's, it's a product of the fact they've done the right things. They, wait, edu- they went they to a good school and themselves. they got good yeah. grades
1: and they got but high SAT scores.
0: and... But there's an element of like social discipline here, too, because if you can identify in the, the unwashed masses sort of like retrograde or backward social beliefs then it's not so hard to just tolerate a world in which those same people can't see a doctor if they need it
1: yeah that's right they're they're not enlightened you know that's yeah bad shit happens when you, you know, when you, when you don't work hard and get a, and get a gold star from the teacher, you know, yeah. they're, they're able to, to, uh, to dismiss those people. And they're, look, this happens all the time. Uh, it was it, Was it Rahm Emanuel? Just, just before Biden took office who was talking about the like the deindustrialized zones. And by the way, it, if you guys ever come out to the Midwest, I'm not in the Midwest now, but it, you know, I still identify with it, the, you know, Kansas city is doing all right, but it, once you get outside of the big cities, it's a ruin, you know, it's, it's like, everything is gone. Uh, uh, you know, uh, everything that people used to do has, 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 has been taken away and the stores have all been rolled up and in Walmart controls everything, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what was Rahm Emanuel saying about these people, you know, who've lost their livelihoods and have lost everything. He said, what was it? They was like, they, you know, they have to learn how to code. Yeah, no, that's not an answer. That's an yeah. insult. And and if all those people learn to code, it would drive down the wages that are <laughs> currently being paid <laughs> to code. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's always their answer. That's like and, and it's 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 not. And, and those people are correct in understanding that that's not an answer, that that's an insult. Everybody can see that. You know, it's basically they're saying it's your own fault. What's happened to you? You know, the destruction of your way of life is your own fault because you didn't. You didn't do like me. You didn't, you know, go to the right school and you didn't study. the, Or maybe you did go to the right school. You didn't study the right subject. Or maybe you did study the right subject, but now we think that's the wrong subject because we've all changed our minds and you shouldn't be studying STEM. You should be studying Latin or, you know, whatever it is. But it's it's endlessly blaming the victim. Always. I guess just uh, my
0: my last question here, and I guess, like, the first is just, um, just uh, one of the things you wrote in the book that really stuck with me is that, like, when it comes to the, like, the the, the anti populist belief and this idea that like oh like if, if left to their own devices you know people are 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 stupid and ignorant and like they can they can't possibly run anything because they just don't know enough and you think like but what you point out though is that that's a cover for the real fear and what the real fear these people have is is that people even not very educated people absolutely understand who is fucking them over why. And, and that, that's the crucial part. Who exactly is fucking them over? And they're mad about it. And these people know that it's them. And they don't like to feel like people are angry at them. So it's not our fault. It's their yeah, that, that's fault. That's a really, how, yes. Has, so sort of like how angry and ignorant and uneducated and backwards they are.
1: Yes. And you're describing a kind of psychological malady or sort of the pathology of the elites. And one, one of the sort of the, the goals of all of my writing in the last 10 years or so Has been to, you know, to examine the elites themselves. You know, let's talk about these guys. So my last book was called Listen Liberal. And I, uh, uh, you know, basically the idea was that you can understand the democratic party and modern American liberalism, basically by reading the sociology of the professions. (laughs) If you read, you read up on like why, why professionals act the way they do, how they believe in meritocracy, how they hate organized labor, you know, all et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can totally predict what the democratic party is going to do. And it, it turned out to be kind of, well, it turned out to be true, but anyhow, so that's, that's, that is Yes understanding the pathology look they're in their in their world everything is about the pathology of the Trump voter the pathology of the people out in Kansas the pathology of, of uh, you know of the guy that mows your lawn you know the problems that the uneducated have but the problems the pathologies of, of the professional class are far more interesting you know because they're, they're these people are blind to them they can't see their own their own um, assumptions and their own screw-ups and their own biases. They can't, they, they can't see it at all. They're just like, we should rule. We got the good grades. We went to the good schools. Of course we should rule. We're the ruling class. Of course yeah. we should
2: rule. God. And they God. only talk to each other. So no one they yeah. in- interact with is going to disabuse them of their notions that they carry around because they all share them.
1: Yes. There's this term that one of these 1950s sociologists who are sort of the big, the big villains in, in, um, in, in my book the the ones who took the word populism and transformed it into the way we use it today into this really negative thing. You know, populism is bigotry. Populism is demagoguery. One of them said populism and by the, by populism, they meant any mass working class movement. And the idea was that all mass movements of working class people are authoritarian and racist and dangerous. And uh, one of them said that, you know, you should never be aspiring for something like that. You do not want mass movements of working class people. What you want is an affinity among elites Mm -hmm. this was this is actually a quote from him you want an affinity among elites you want all of us together around the big table in washington dc we you want us to be friends with one another we want it you want us getting along with one another not questioning each other do you remember what uh larry summers said to elizabeth warren do you remember this famous (laughs) the famous remark she quoted it in her book it was something like they were out to lunch somewhere and he said to be i'm Gonna butcher it here, but he, he, he said to her something like, If you want to, you know, one of the, the, the first rules of being an insider is insiders don't insult other insiders. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like affinity among elites. You've got to have how affinity you get among
2: guys them. like that David Smick dickhead whose movie we watched. Oh, um, I was be, who...
1: no, I'm, I'm sorry. You... I, was, I was gonna tease you guys about that.
0: Thomas, if you have not seen Stars and Strife, uh, you could read a whole book on it. <laughs> No, that movie is, is just
2: your thesis in in. You the know what's funny is to is, make it. It's like Bruce like Lee, Far,
0: that.
1: Hackman, I, I cannot, Kane in I, the same room. This is my thesis. Watch <laughs> Stars and Stripes. I, I, I wrote this book to shatter the worldview of guys like that, and to com- you know completely disrupt the way they talk and their assumptions. And you know what the problem is? They never read it. <laughs> yeah, of course not no. so i I can't get any of this. I can't break through with any of this stuff uh, wait, I take it back it's it is in europe uh weirdly enough, in Europe, people are fascinated by it uh and so i've I've been doing all of these you know interviews with like European t v and whatnot, but in this country, i cannot and you'd think this country would care because populism is an American invention, it's an american thing uh you'd think people would care. Like I can't even get my hometown paper to re- interested in this. The Kansas City Star. I I can't get anybody in this country. Inter- it's re- it's it's truly weird. So like a, people, just an example. Like the other day, Biden was talking about how like what Georgia is doing is worse than Jim Crow. Makes well, it look like Jim Eagle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's really interesting because he's right. Jim Crow is when is the period when they disenfranchised black voters in the south but there's more to the story than that it's a real it's not just they didn't just do it you know one day decide that they were going to do that it's it's actually really interesting and it involves this story of populism and this menace uh the the uh, faced by the southern ruling class of of blacks and poor blacks and poor whites getting together uh and you know joining forces and 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 you know and and uh and and overwhelming you know outvoting uh the owners and It's a fascinating story. Nobody talks about this story. I can't get anybody interested in that. There's this incredible chapter of our history. I mean, it's an awful chapter of our history. Anyhow.
2: I think that uh, the reason that they just can't countenance it and the reason that they have decided that populism means racism inherently and it's inherently reactionary is that they, out of self-interest and because of ideology, have foreclosed the possibility that anything can be different in the way that uh, economic – uh, output is distributed uh, and power is distributed they it just it's it, we're at the end of a road that is uh that can't be moved we, I, we cannot I, I, change this and that means that the only thing that the people can get out of government if they have more influence is a chance to vent their hatreds and frustrations over being squeezed by this economy
1: yeah it's what we decide to give them basically yes. but they uh the 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 real turn against populism came in the fifties when you had this generation of intellectuals coming up, and they were they were they were called the consensus uh, the consensus generation. This is Richard Hofstadter, Daniel Bell, you know what you know the the group that I'm talking about, and uh, or maybe you don't. I'm older than oh, you yeah. guys. This was <laughs> Parano- <laughs> we had to, yeah, we had to the read this crap. Style, but,
0: yes, yes, yes. I love that Black Sabbath
2: song, the vital center.
1: Uh, so, yeah, the vital center, but the end of ideology. All these guys and um. They these were the guys that that took the word populism and and twisted it and like I said before they did it uh, to describe all mass movements of of working class people and why that why those movements were dangerous. There's a guy called Seymour Lipset. He you know he called it um what was it working class authoritarianism. Hmm. Was the idea that all working class movements are authoritarian in their nature and then he uses the word populism as a sort of shorthand to describe that even though it's wrong. Right. And the guy who the guy who really does this is, is Richard Hofstadter, the historian. He actually knew what populism was and he studied it and he hated it and he hated it all his life. And I'm not really sure why he hated it so much, but he denounced it constantly. If you if you read his like writing all through the course of his life, he's always denouncing populism. And um, he he wrote a very famous book on it in 1955. It was called uh, uh, the, the Age of Reform. And, uh, you know, attacking populism. And uh, it was a massive success. He got the Pulitzer Prize, you know, bestseller. It's been described as the most uh, influential work of American history ever published. And it's this is where the whole theory of populism as bigotry, populism as paranoid, populism is mental illness. Populism is people who are on a down. They're, they're going down. And so they, they lash out. Uh, He called it status anxiety. This was his theory that anybody who is anybody who is on their way down in American life is essentially reactionary. And this was he did this because he was, you know, he's looking at McCarthyism and he says, well, McCarthyism is a form of populism. And so this book is massively, massively influential. And all the sort of the consensus intellectuals are like, aha, he's exactly right. And they start using the word populism to describe McCarthy and to describe uh, everything else, right, that they that they don't like Two things are important here. First of all, Hofstadter, within five or six years, the American history profession turns on this theory and demolishes it. And there's all of these books written just trashing and articles, scholarly articles, trashing Hofstadter's theory of populism, you know, showing, no, this is not, this is wrong. They weren't like that. This is wrong. They weren't like that. They weren't particularly anti-Semitic. They weren't this. They weren't that. Hofstadter's completely wrong, but it doesn't matter. It, it's that's still the theory. Right. It can't be refuted. And that's the theory that like when, you know, when a political scientist today says populism is X, Y and Z, that's what they're that's where this comes from. It comes from Richard Hofstadter. And it doesn't matter that the American history profession completely trashed Hofstadter's thesis. Well, why doesn't it matter? Now, isn't that interesting? That's that that is like that. That really intrigued me when I figured that out. You know, that's that's a really that's mysterious That it's like it's like, you know, what's another discarded theory of American history, like the frontier, you know, the frontier thesis. If we were still, you know, in the grip of that, even though it doesn't matter how many times it's been refuted, we still believe it. Why do they still believe it? Because it's inherently flattering to intellectuals to believe that the real division in American life is between people like them. Remember, this is the 1950s. This is the heyday of managerialism. Hofstadter is looking around. At the at the you know the world of you know who runs America and he's and it's people like him, it's people with advanced degrees are all of a sudden they're in charge of American life. And Daniel Bell, by the way, was really open about this. He'd say like, "Hey, people like me are running the Pentagon now." Robert McNamara, you know, the the geniuses are finally in charge. Man. The organization. There you go. Exactly. This is the heyday of that stuff, and so they have this binary theory of the world where there's you can either have populism or you can have them consensus a consensus of elites and obviously this theory is massively flattering to them that you can't have you know how do you get reforms remember Hofstadter's title is the age of reform how do you get reform do you have mass movements of working people demanding things so he goes way out of his way to prove by the way and he doesn't prove it he gets it completely wrong to show that populism achieved nothing That this biggest mass movement in American history, which it was, by the way, in per capita terms, achieved nothing. And by extension, the labor movement in the 1930s achieved nothing. What, what works? What gets you reform? Well, it's people like these guys sitting around the table in Washington, D.C., affinity among the elites. That works. That brings change. That is able – how you manage the economy, you manage the corporations, you manage the war in Southeast Asia, and that gets results. And that's the – look, our elites are still in the grip of that bullshit today. They can't let it go, even, if, even though it's completely wrong. They can't really let it weird. go.
2: It is really weird how you, the uh, meritocratic elites of the 50s and 60s create this you know, uh, modern welfare state that provides uh, a growing uh, uh, prosperity that reaches across all uh, uh, generations and and groups and stuff. And then when the labor movement and, and labor in this country loses its influence in government, those same meritocratic elites start fucking taking the doors off the hinges yes. and start yeah, uh, it's, selling end- everything off.
1: Yeah, OK, that's true. You're exactly right. You know, Medicare and all that. But there's a, so there's a but there's a, a piece missing of the puzzle here, which is that labor was still very strong in the 1960s. And labor was, you know, like people like Walter Ruther, uh, who have a lot to answer for. Right. He supported the Vietnam War, but it, it was reaching out to the civil rights movement, you know, strongly in favor of, of Medicare. You know, uh, the the great society, that sort of thing. They were still important players. And that's the populist tradition. Uh, you see that through the, you know, through the labor. Well, those guys are gone now. I mean, there is, they have nothing like that kind of power anymore. Uh, I mean, they're, um, you know, they're just a shadow today. How, what's the percentage of the, like you know, 7% private, of the private sector Yeah, uh, it's less than that in the private sector workforce. Yeah. You know, it's, it's incredible what, how, how, well, in the sixties, it would have been like 25%. And they, in the, in the Northern States would be closer to like you know, 40, where I come from, it'd be like 40%. They were massively powerful. That's all gone now. And, and you also, the, the Democratic Party then with Johnson wasn't totally beholden to this group. Uh, they were in some ways, like the foreign policy community, that kind of thing. And, you know, but they also, you know, Johnson was, had a populist streak to him. One of the things that, of my little relics that I like to show people is this. Nobody remembers this guy, Fred Harris. The last like sort of left winger to run for president, calling himself a pop. He was a Democratic senator from Oklahoma, way to the left, ran for president in 1976, calling himself a populist. And he did this kind of proto-Bernie campaign. It's where a lot of Bernie's ideas came from. Did it all with small dollar donations, like his supporters would have bake sales and stuff like that. He drove around the country in a Winnebago. <laughs> That's how he campaigned. Uh, anyhow. But the, 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 you still had stuff like that back then. It's all, That's all evaporated uh, today. It's up to yeah. us now. We've got to
2: bring it back. Yeah, the, well, that's the thing that's so absolutely hollow about the the continuing elite consensus idea is that we know now, we have the evidence, that absent labor as a coherent force at the table of government and power, capital will tell the shots. You don't get to say what to do. Yeah. You All your fancy degrees and all of your... Uh, uh, virtuous uh political ideas and all G-yard all sandwich. of your expertise, none of it matters because capital is just telling you what to do there's no uh, uh, there 's no articulation beyond that, which means things are just going to keep getting better because you used to know <laughs> that that 's what capitalism does if it 's not restrained call that it just progress, makes everything worse progress
1: yeah progress by the way i 'm uh yeah well i 't really want to go into this but but the the whole Narrative of of things constantly getting better is one of the things that populism challenged because that idea was just as strong in the nineteenth century as it is today. And um, anyhow, I'm fascinated by by that and and how and how deep that idea is and how we can't shake the idea of progress. Although COVID, goddamn, COVID has really damaged that. Um, I sure don't feel like it's progress anymore. But you're exa- But you're exactly right. I'm sorry, I'm detracting. For you made a, you made an excellent point there. That is exactly right. I would go further than saying just. Labor unions. So it's just mass organizations of working class people. They don't have a seat at the table. And yeah. without that, yeah, you, we are, we are screwed and we will, we will get screwed more and more and more. Well, on that cheery note, yeah, I,
2: think, yeah, yeah, I, almost, I think we should wrap I up. love
1: I love ending these conversations in that way. It's a, well,
0: you know, I never I never like to end a conversation by just asking someone like help us. What do we do? Save us. What's
1: the solution? Well, come but on. I, 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 I really <laughs> I mean, I am backward looking. I write history. I write about the past, you know, but it's it's obvious what needs to happen, you know. And, uh, you know, I was very hopeful about the Bernie Sanders movement. I was I was. In fact, I wrote the book before he dropped out. <laughs> it was uh, I was I was very uh, hopeful about I actually thought he was going to win in 2020. And I did, too. Uh, it's yeah. one of those it's one of those you know freaky ironies of history that the guy who's out there campaigning for universal health care loses in the year of covid like what the fuck you know how does it how does that happen and uh, uh anyhow but bernie one of the things that i really liked about bernie is that he understood the the significance of mass movements that you it's not the guys sitting around the mahogany table in Washington D.C. and it's not the people with the yard signs talking about what virtu- how virtuous they are. Literally, in this house, we are good. You know, that's not it. You have to have a mass movement of ordinary people, and Bernie understood that. And that's I, I hope that it out. You know, I doubt that he's going to try again. You know, but I hope that his movement continues. I mean, he's got to. We got to have yeah. something.
2: Got to have something.
1: Well, on that note, I will
0: just say in this trap house, we uh, do not read the books of Richard Hofstetter or Lauren Summers. We uh, read the books. In this house, we read the books of Thomas Frank. The book is The People Know A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Thomas Frank, I want to thank you so much for this great book and yes, for your time with us.
1: This is my pleasure. Absolutely.